Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. I've had an eventful morning. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and deal with the elephant in the room. I am not Randy Roberts, but I am happy to be in front of you today as we exercise this worship service on adaptability. So it's about 5 a.m. And I wish I could tell you I was praying. I wasn't. I was still asleep. And my phone rang. I see the name on the ID, and it's Randy Roberts. Have you ever wanted to ignore a phone call? So Linda says, I think you should call him. And he's at home. Boss, we've got this. Rest up, get better. And we are here. So I was thinking as I'm trying to process how to refer to this congregation, which we all love. And I've been dealing, quite frankly, with a crisis. Maybe you can help me resolve it. It's an ethical crisis. Because at 5.15 in the morning, our senior pastor, my mentor, says, my manuscript is on my desk, should you want to use it. So here's the manuscript. And now I have this decision that I need to make. So every fiber of my being wants to say, you should just read the manuscript. But you see, as I'm engaged in an academic program, I've learned that plagiarizing is probably not a good thing. So I don't know how I'm going to footnote it, and I'm struggling deeply, and then I realize that I don't have to worry anymore because this is a safe space. So here's what I love about Loma Linda University Church. Can I tell you? What I love about Loma Linda University Church is that all through our week, we have to throw up these flags. These proverbial flags that help us identify those who are for us and those who are against us. So you throw your flag out and you hope, you hope that a community out there recognizes it. 
Now, the benefit to that is that you will, fi- you will find out that there is a tightly knit group of people with whom you agree on pretty much everything. The danger with that is that you are always hesitant to be completely vulnerable. But for the glorious time between 11.45 and 1 p.m. on Sabbath, we get to be open. And we get to be open because here at Loma Linda University Church, we agree with you if you are pro-life because we've decided to give our lives to Christ. We also agree with you if you're pro-choice because we've chosen Christ above all things. And so rather than throw up our flags, what we are able to do is we are able to say, in this place, for this brief amount of time, Jesus reigns supreme. And let's face it, church, we can all agree on that. So I want to start simply by sharing a story. And it's a story that another mentor of mine, the late great American pastor, Eugene Peterson, pens in a book that our senior pastor and I have read a number of times. So this is Peterson. Peterson says, a number of years ago, my wife and our three children were in Yellowstone National Park. The first of our national parks. I often think of our national parks as sanctuaries, parallel to our churches. Now, the churches are sanctuaries for the cross, the covenant, salvation. The parks are sanctuaries for creation. They are places for protecting creation from exploitation, places we can look on the earth and the fullness thereof, be in adoration of the creator and in awe of his creation. Yellowstone was the first place in this continent to be set apart in this way. So my family and I are walking in a mountain meadow in Yellowstone Park, and we see him. It's a little boy about 30 yards away. He's in the meadow picking exquisite alpine flowers. Now, you know that it's against the law to pick flowers in our national parks. I mean, even my children knew that. After all, they were well-versed in the Sierra Club motto, take nothing but pictures, leave nothing but footprints. It was that motto, along with John 3.16, that they would recite by memory to the point that they began to think that the Sierra motto was actually part of Scripture. So here's this little kid, and he's out in the meadow picking flowers. I see him, and I am outraged. Sacrilege. Sacrilege taking place on holy ground. I yell at him, don't pick the flowers. I must have not said it loudly enough because he kept on frolicking in the meadow. So again, I said, hey, you, don't pick the flowers. And he stood. 
He just stood there wide-eyed, innocent, and terrified. He dropped the flowers and started crying. Now, you can imagine what happened next. My wife and children, especially my children, were all over me. Daddy, what you did was far worse than what he did. He was just picking a few flowers, and you yelled at him. You scared him. You ruined him. He is probably going to have to go to counseling until he's 40 years old. Uh, my children were right. You cannot yell people into holiness. You cannot terrify people into the sacred. And my yelling was a far worse violation of this holy place than him picking a few flowers. Later, I had plenty of opportunity to reflect on this, reminded, as I frequently was, by my children. I do that a lot. You know, I bluster and yell on behalf of God's holy presence instead of taking my shoes off, kneeling on the holy ground, and inviting whoever happens to be around to join with me. You know, one of the most controversial doctrines that we have as Seventh-day Adventists is that of the sanctuary. And today, today we began a six-part series entitled Sanctified. Now, if you don't know or you are a little rusty with your Adventist history, permit me to just give you a 30-second refresher course on the sanctuary. So Adventism began because we were really bad with dates. And in 1844, we were expecting Jesus to come. And Jesus hasn't come. So our spiritual pioneers wanted to make sure that that experience meant something. And there were several options that we had. We could have said, well, nothing happened. We could have, as a newspaper of the time recounts, given ourselves to strong drink and moved to California. Or we could have delved into Scripture in order to find a pathway through this, this period of transition. And that's what we did. We said that in the, on that fall day in 1844, Jesus actually moved from one apartment of the sanctuary to another in order to, be, to begin his intercessory work. We said that Jesus was up in heaven conducting the investigative judgment, reading off a book trying to decide what our eternal destiny would be. And this caused a little bit of problems. After all, the Adventist church that I grew up with dealt with these contradictions. You know, on the one hand, we said, you are free by grace alone. On the other hand, we said, we better not catch you eating shellfish. On the, on the one hand, we said, Jesus paid it all on Calvary. On the other hand, we said, you just need to do enough 
On the one hand, we said, I trust in nothing else than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And on the other hand, we said, well, let's just hope that when your name comes up in the book, you're doing what you ought to be doing. I've thought about that quite a bit. And I've realized that after all, Adventism, much like us, has these internal and inherent conflicts. And too often we've tried to resolve the conflict. Today we want to go to Scripture. We want to go to Scripture in order to ask some new questions about the sanctuary. And there's two things that I want you to consider as we converse this afternoon. Number one, what is God doing? Number two, what do we do in response? So now that we have that set before us, let's go to the text, shall we? If you have a Bible, why don't you open it with me to Exodus chapter 25, and we're going to be living, breathing, and exploring the first nine verses of that chapter. So Exodus chapter 25. Now you need to understand something. As the story opens, we are much like Peterson's kid. We're sitting there at the lip of Sinai with our holy flowers in our hands, tears streaming down our face because we are experiencing with Israel this moment of transition. And the book of Exodus is all about shifts. It's how do you move from being bonded to Pharaoh to being bound to Yahweh? How do you move from building statues for Egypt to constructing a sanctuary? How do you experience God's occasional presence with the reality that in the sanctuary, in this tabernacle, you now have access to God's ongoing presence? Now, there's an interesting thing about transitions. Transitions always give us an opportunity to rethink about what matters. I experienced one such transition about 10 years ago. Linda got pregnant, and like most men, I began to worry. And the reason I was worried was because I didn't know how our lovely family dynamic was going to shift once you introduced a child. But... My fears were assuaged when I realized and I started picturing how wondrous it would be if I held my beautiful baby girl. And so we went to the hospital to get our first ultrasound. And that became a rather awkward experience because our physician comes to this church. And so as she was conducting the ultrasound, she stopped, smiled, looked up and said, Daddy, congratulations, you are going to have a baby boy. And I don't know if you've ever had one of these moments where you, where you say something and as soon as the words leave your lips, you kind of want to pull them back. I had that moment 
Because I looked at her and I said, are, are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, can, can you check again? Sure, I can check again. See? Boy. Are you sure? Can you make that disappear, maybe? And so I'm starting to panic. Because I have all these aspirations, all these dreams, all these ideas about how my life is going to turn out. And I'm afraid that when this little boy comes into the world, my heart isn't going to be big enough. Big enough to hold these dreams, this love that I have for my wife, this passion that I feel for my calling. How am I going to fit this little boy in this heart? Funny thing is we approach God in a very similar way. Most often when we think about God, there's a tinge of fear that begins to creep in. And the fear is driven, let's face it, by the question, is God's heart big enough to handle me and all the mess that I'm bringing with me? So we find Israel in this transition season. And I should point out that by the time we get to Exodus 25, Israel has quite a bit of baggage. They're constantly apostatizing, constantly trying to control God, mumbling and complaining. They are carrying quite a big of, of baggage. And so our first question comes into focus. What is God doing? So come with me to the text, Exodus chapter 25. And let's start at the outset. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose hearts prompts them to give. Now just let me stop as we consider these two first verses. And consider this possibility. This God, this God that we are constantly questioning about, this God that we're not sure of, this God that we deeply want to accept us, calls for an offering. But what really strikes me in verse 2 is that that offering is voluntary. Do you notice it? God says, tell them to bring whatever their heart prompts them to bring. See, God wants us to approach him freely. And what I find interesting is that the command that God gives to Moses is this, this command to build a tent. Bring me offerings so that I can build a tent. And what does that tent look like? Well, that tent is flexible, it's foldable, and it has no frills. Just as God's history of the universe begins with an act of creation, the history of the people of Israel in Exodus begins with an act of creation. 
But isn't it wondrous to recognize that the God that we worship is a God that views creation as a collaborative effort? So God says, bring me whatever your heart desires, and we're going to build a tent together. And this portable tent, every time you pull it apart, every time you pitch it, every time you fold it, every time you're engaged and your calloused hands are in the process of building it, we are going to remember that you and I are joined together. You see, God invites us to build tents. The problem is that we like to build boxes. See, God says, build me something that's portable, that's pliable, that's flexible. And we say, no, God, what you really want is something that is structured, well-decorated, with clearly demarcated lines. God says, come freely. And we, said, well, we say, well, we need to hide who we are. And then comes Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, the first place in Scripture where the word sanctuary is used. Then have them make me a sanctuary, and I will dwell among them. And this word dwell is a really interesting Hebrew word because the meaning of it has to do with this abiding presence that is engulfing it fills the spaces that exist between us, and it also fills us. So in essence, what God is saying is, build me a sanctuary. I want to inundate you with my presence. You know, this, the sanctuary isn't about what God is doing or what God has stopped doing. The sanctuary is about the recognition of God's desire to engulf us in his presence. But the problem is that we prefer our boxes. And this isn't anything new. You see, if you follow the history of the Israelite people and this act of attempting to construct a portable and pliable tent, you'll find that the story concludes in 1 Kings chapter 6. And the author of Kings makes sure that he connects linguistically to this experience in Exodus. The only difference, though, is that when Solomon tries to build his temple, he's not asking for free offerings. He's not asking for you to bring whatever your heart desires. He actually requires 30,000 conscripts. And he begins to force his people not only to build a temple, but to build granaries. The word that the Hebrew uses in order to describe what Solomon is doing is the very same word that the Hebrew uses to describe what Pharaoh does to Israel. You see, Jesus wants to give you rest. He wants to give you the experience of rest as you come to him freely. But when we fall in love with our boxes, all we get is restlessness. Restlessness driven by fear. 
So if Adventist eschatology or if Adventist understandings of the sanctuary have ever prompted you to feel fear, perhaps it's time that we begin to reconsider those notions. Build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among you. So scholars will tell you that about a million men left Egypt. That's a million men, plus women, plus children, plus cattle, and whatever else they were carrying. Now, I know this is going to be shocking, friends, but I don't like camping. And the reason I don't like camping, well, there's no warm showers. <laughs> and it doesn't matter how hard you try, when you're trying to wrangle two boys, camping becomes messy. Well, here God is saying, hey, there's a million of you in the desert, plus women, plus children, plus animals. I want you to build a tent for me right in the middle of that. And the point can't be lost on you. What is God doing? La Melinda University Church, God wants us to invite him in the middle of our mess. As a pastor, I often hear heartbroken people saying, I just need to figure it out. Before I give this God thing a try, I just got to figure it out. I got to cleanse myself. I got to align myself. I don't want to be hypocritical. I need to figure it out. After all, those wonderful Adventists, they look so prim and proper in their suits and dresses. God says, I want to live in the middle of your mess, though. But you only have that opportunity for, for vulnerability when you come to him freely. You know what's really interesting? Leviticus 1.1, right after this whole section on the sanctuary, Leviticus 1.1, I know, I know you guys think that Leviticus is the most interesting book in the Bible. So Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, begins with the words, and God spoke to Moses from the tent of meeting. So in Exodus 25, God tells them, I want you to build me a sanctuary because I want to live in the middle of your mess. And in Leviticus, God is speaking from that mess. And this is the application. It's a rather simple takeaway. Invite God to, that, to your mess, and I guarantee you, God's going to speak to you from that mess. Because God is in the process of doing what he's always done. And you might be asking yourself the question, well, what is God always done? Well, God's always, be, God's always been Adventist. Yeah, God's always been Adventist. I know the temptation's there to pat yourself on the shoulder and say, yeah, I'm Adventist too, just like Jesus. But when I'm talking about Adventism, what I'm really talking about is this idea that God comes. And God's been trying to invade our reality from the beginning. Adam hides and is broken and naked, and God says, 
where are you? Well, I have this mess, God. I'm, I'm naked. There's fig leaves. I'm nervous. And God says, who told you? You know, Abraham, Abraham fails and forgets and falters, and God says, I want to make a great nation out of you. Israel is captive in Egypt, and God says, I want to live right in the middle of that mess. The people of God forget their commitment to create societies that are just and fair and equitable, and God sends prophet after prophet after prophet reminding them that someday, very soon, he's going to perform heart surgery on us. And he's going to replace those stone-filled hearts with fleshy beating ones. But that's not enough for the God that comes. That's not enough for the Adventist God. That's not enough for the sanctuary God. Because God loves us so much that he says... I don't just want to live in the middle of your mess. I don't just want to speak to you from that mess. I want to become part of the mess. And so John has this vision, and as he is writing, his gospel, the first chapter, the first verse, it says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And verse 16 says, and the word tabernacled, became enfleshed. It dwelt among us. See, the sanctuary God says, I want to be part of that mess. And just when you think that the story is over, God still does more. Because on that island of Patmos, as John is penning the last chapter of human history, he sees God come down and he says, finally, Finally, my dwelling place is among my people. I will be their God, and they will be my people, and I will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the God that we serve. And you might be wondering, well, why is it that God is so relentless? Why is it that God is ever pursuing me? And the reason is actually quite simple. No theological proposition, no fancy doctrinal statement. The reason why God is pursuing you is because you're valuable. If we take Scripture at its word then we are confronted with the wondrous reality that the sanctuary is you. See, we've spent a lot of ink. We've gone to a lot of wars. We've faced a lot of disappointment trying to answer the question, what is Jesus doing up there? Maybe, just maybe, the question that we should have been asking this whole time is, what is Jesus doing in here? Because God dwells in the builders, not the building. See, the building that inhabits and that houses the church isn't as important as the people that inhabit the building. People always have primacy in the economy of the kingdom. 
build me a sanctuary. I want to dwell among you. So come freely. So that's what God is up to. Freely calling us, speaking us from our messes, immersing himself in the mess, being Adventist. And now you might be wondering, well, what do I do? Richard Foster, a theologian, when thinking about how we respond to the God who comes, how do we live out our commission to be sanctuary, coins it by restoring an old definition that was used by the early church. Foster calls it spiritual discipline. You might be wondering, well, what is that? What is a spiritual discipline? Well, a spiritual discipline is not unlike a sailor on a boat. I don't know how to sail, but I know one thing. I know that if you have a sailboat, what moves you is the wind. The only thing you have to do is let down the mast, open your sail. Foster uses a better analogy, perhaps. He says that to practice spiritual disciplines is to be like a farmer on a field. Ah, sure, the farmer can grow the seed. The farmer can't ensure the harvest. All that the farmer can do is prepare the soil in order to house the seed. And so if you are a sanctuary, what you are then called to do is prepare the soil that houses the seed. Which reminds me, reminds me of that little boy, you know, the one I wish was a girl, the one who I was disappointed and afraid of 10 years ago. Uh, that little boy grew up. And last week, that little boy and I celebrated Father's Day. And he took me to lunch, and we were eating, and he was very excited because he said, Daddy, I got you a Father's Day present. So I'm going to show you what my little boy gave me for Father's Day. He gave me this. It's not a cigar. I'm going to read to you what it is. It says... Ento Life Kickers, jalapeno garlic, roasted cricket snacks. So he gives me this thing, and he says, See, Daddy, now you can be like John the Baptist. <laughs> and I'm looking at this thing, and I'm saying to myself, Ew. But I can't tell him that lest he have to go into therapy until he's 40. So I look at him and I say, oh, son, that's so thoughtful. What a great gift. Well, if you've ever been a parent, you know what comes next. And I'm saying, yeah. And he says, daddy, don't you want to try it? Oh, son, this is so special. I just want to use it for a special occasion. Well, what can be more special than Father's Day, Dad? 
I knew I should have had a girl. <laughs> and so he opens this little bottle, and pours a couple of them in my hand. and watches me as I put them inside my mouth. And I don't know if you've ever had a moment when you want to just spit out. <laughs> and like your, af your reflex is triggered and you're just... Um, and so I, I thought to myself, well, maybe if I just keep it on the side of my mouth... He'll, he'll get distracted, and I can dispose of these later. But no, he kept looking at me, and he says, I want you to swallow, Dad. <laughs> so I did. And then he asks me the question, you know, the question that is to follow. How was it? And I lied. I said, it was delicious. He said, yeah, Dad, I know. Now we know what to get you for Christmas. Would you like some more? Sure. So he puts another handful in my palm. And I start musing over this. And finally understanding why John the Baptist was always in such a bad mood. <laughs> and then an idea comes to my mind. Because let's face it, misery loves company. I said, son, this is so good, I want to share it with you. <laughs> so I partitioned this handful into two, placed half in his hand, counted, and then we ate it together. And it was gross. But something happened in that moment. You know, all this fear, all this trepidation, all this worry about my heart not being big enough to hold all this love, it had disappeared. You know, crickets made my heart grow two full sizes because my boy and I shared something. Quick disclaimer, please don't send insects to the church office. <laughs> now, what we shared wasn't perfect. It wasn't delicious. It wasn't exquisite. But it was ours. You know, often we think that when we're approaching the God that created everything, we need to meet him with a five-course meal. But the God that comes freely, the Adventist God, the God that lives in here, that God wants to share crickets with you. Build me a sanctuary that we may dwell among you. To all of you who worry, 
if God's heart is big enough to hold you and all of your baggage. God says, try it out. You'll be surprised. Let's pray. God, we, we come to you aghast because the God that created the universe wants to live in us that we may let you in without fear so that you may allow us to live for others too often Lord we we try to scare people into being holy. Today, you simply are inviting us to take our shoes off. To take our shoes off in wonder that the God, the God who lives in us. Thank you for that, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. So friends, at the beginning of our time together, as you were coming into church, you probably received a little card like this. You might be asking, well, how are we going to prepare our sanctuaries to experience God? Well, on the other side of the card, you'll find a little sentence. It's quite simple. It is an invitation for you to consider and ponder this. It says, Jesus, this summer I offer you my, and you get to fill it out. You get to fill it out with whatever baggage you might have, whatever fears you might have, whatever you feel is keeping you apart from experiencing the wondrous reality of that God that calls you into a free relationship with him. Fill that out. And the next couple of weeks, we are going to see how God begins to work in and through us. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.